0: God is on our side. I heard a lot of that growing up in the U.S. of A, that America was founded on godly principles and so we had God's favor. That God was on our side, working for our success, economically, politically, especially militarily. God is with us, God is cheering for and helping us to fight against our enemies. U.S.A. That's a pretty human impulse to see ourselves, our side as upright and blessed, to believe that the sacred powers of the cosmos, all that is right and good and true, however we name those, those forces are with us and against those who oppose us. We're not quite so outspoken about that here in Canada, but it's in the water here as well. God save our gracious King. There's a lot of that in the Bible, too. There's a lot of possessive language in scripture. The Lord our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are God's people. The battle belongs to the Lord, etc. Like most people groups, the people of God in the Bible are identified by their boundaries, from family clans to tribes, to nation, to religious ethnicity. And at every stage, the drumbeat is strong. God is with our group, and explicitly or explicitly, not with them. Our enemies are God's enemies. There's a lot of that in scripture. That's the main flow. But in this series for the past two months, we've been looking outside that main flow, paying attention to the streams wandering off to the side, the voices that present a counter-narrative. And when we pay attention to the rest of the story, we hear something different. The story of God moving beyond human boundaries. The spirit at work in other people groups, caring about them, working for their well-being, even the well-being of our enemies. That's the total upending of expectations we read in the story, story of Naaman. It's a pretty simple story with four two-character scenes. And in each scene, the power dynamics flip our expectations on their head. Scene one is the commander and the slave girl. Naaman was a powerful guy. By legend, he's a kingslayer. He has captured this young woman, the Israelite. He entirely controls her life. By the God is on my side narrative, this is prime for a David and Goliath revolution. The enemy is a giant, but by the strength of God, we know this story, the slave rises up to win the victory, but not here. Instead of a knife in the back or poison in the soup, this servant girl serves. When it is revealed that the giant commander is actually weak with leprosy, she doesn't gloat or cheer, but she instead offers compassion. She wishes him well. She gives what help she has to offer. Healing for her captor, that is her desire. Scene two is the king and the enemy. Genuinely moved by this offer of help and grasping at straws, Naaman goes to Israel, hat in hand, begging the Israelite king for healing. This is also a familiar scenario in the God is on our side narrative. Foreigners are meant to stream to Israel for help. We have God's blessing, so of course they come to us in need and we graciously offer to share the blessing. That's how the pyramid is supposed to go. But again, the expectations are upended. The king of Israel isn't benevolent or confident or gracious, he's paranoid. This is a trap. You're tricking me into giving you an excuse for an attack. Sometimes this bluster of God is on our side is a hedge against insecurity. In this case, it's the powerful one who is scared. It is the weak one, the sick one, who has faith. Scene three is the mighty prophet and the sick man. Of course, Elisha the prophet is the hero of the story. We expect God to be on the prophet's side. But this prophet enters the story kind of as a jerk. Elisha, he has the power, he has the healing that the commander needs. He knows that he's in control. And so the prophet sets out to teach Naaman a lesson in humility. Go wash in the Jordan River seven times. There's nothing magic or miraculous about the Jordan. The healing Elisha knows this, the healing will come from God. It's not a magic river. The requirement is a display of dominance. It's meant to humiliate the enemy commander. I suspect that Elisha thinks Naaman will refuse the indignity, that he would rather go away proud and still dying. And at first, Naaman falls into that trap. He understands the insult. He puts up a fuss, I'm better than this. But again, it's the servants who intervene with kindness and with wisdom. They remind Naaman of his vulnerability. They invite him to see and accept his limitations. And so to Elisha's surprise, Naaman accepts the humiliation. He washes himself in the dirty river and he emerges clean and whole. The climax of this story is grace. Grace for Naaman in his healing, grace for the prophet as Naaman repays Elisha's insult with gratitude. And grace from the prophet in return as he refuses payment from Naaman and sends him on his way with a blessing. The opposing forces have been brought together by grace. Scene four, the epilogue, is one final underlining of the upended expectations. Gehazi, servant of the prophet, chases after after Naaman and lies, saying that, oh, the prophet changed his mind, he requires a payment after all. Where the prophet expected the enemy commander to be proud and materialistic, it is the prophet's own servant that gets caught up by his ego. Where the sin and the disease was supposed to be over there with them, it turns out that the sin, the greed, the disease actually lived in the prophet's own house. And when Gehazi is caught in the lie, he bears the mark of the sin in his own flesh. That's the story. What if God is not with us against our enemies, but rather with them, working for their well-being, offering them healing and grace? And what if we are not so righteous and blessed after all, but equally or even more sinful and rotten? It's no wonder that the prophets weren't very popular in their day. It's no wonder that these books remain the least read parts of the Bible today. What if, in our modern global obsession with enemies and allies, what if God is not so interested in winners and losers? The story of Naaman has the whole range of the human hierarchy, from the strongest to the weakest, and it is all about the power dynamics turned upside down. It's the commander brought to his knees before the prophet. It's the king being useless and scared. It's the servants revealed as the source of true wisdom. But God isn't manipulating winners and losers here. God isn't getting revenge on foreign powers. God isn't rewarding heroes and punishing bad guys. God isn't isn't even lifting up the oppressed and setting the prisoners free, much as I believe in that vision of justice. Instead, what we see is God working for the deeper goal of human flourishing everywhere. Each character receives something different in this story. There's healing for Naaman, There's fulfillment for the prophet. The servant girl gets a voice, if not a name. Even the fool Gehazi receives the gift of a learning opportunity, a particularly painful one. God doesn't settle any scores or start any revolutions or bring peace and justice between the nations, not this time. And yet everyone gets something that they need to help them grow and thrive. And so, even though we have genuine conflicts with our political enemies, even as we pray for peace in Sudan and Yemen and Congo and Afghanistan and Ukraine, even when we hope for the terrorists to be defeated, for corrupt governments to be brought to justice, even so, perhaps we can be reminded that God doesn't share all of our goals in those departments. Not because God doesn't care or isn't invested, but because maybe we don't see as clearly as we like to think. Maybe we're not so good at picking out the good guys and the bad guys. Maybe our preferred solutions will actually create more suffering than they would prevent. Maybe our insecurities control us more than we would like. Maybe our motives aren't so pure and our wisdom isn't so essential. Not that we stop working for justice and peace and compassion across the street and around the world, but can we do that with humility and open hands? keeping in mind that God's objective is not winning, but the thriving of all of creation. And that thriving includes all of us. As the quote goes, until we are all free, we are none of us free. My fate is bound up with their fate, even and especially the fate of my enemies. My flourishing is dependent upon their flourishing as well. So, can we pray for the well being of our political adversaries? Can we imagine and work towards not their defeat, but their thriving? Can we trust that what is truly good for them might also be truly good for us? I've got five minutes up here. It's a great big complex world out there. God is with us and for us, true. But perhaps that is way more complicated than we thought. Perhaps the circle of us is much larger, much more uncomfortable, much more wonderful than we dare to imagine. May it be.